service, and technically, um, it's not 40 days till Easter, it's 40 days plus Sundays, so it's 46 days, and um, it's a period of really the 40 days uh, that marks the time when Christians seek to be more fully conformed to the death of Christ, that the life of Christ inside them might shine more fully through them. Of course, this is to be our attitude throughout the entire year, but having a season to be reminded of that truth is, is healthy. You know, 40 is an important number throughout Scripture. How many know that, right? I think the, uh, maybe the first time, I'm not sure, I think the first time we, we find the number 40 is in the story of Noah, where it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens during that time? The world is destroyed, right? It all turns to dust, so to speak before it rises anew out of that dust. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years before they experienced the glories of the promised land, right? The Ninevites, when Jonah was sent to preach to them, they were given 40 days to repent, and they repented, we're told, in ashes, and God raised them out of those ashes and granted them his salvation and deliverance. 40 is also associated with many other things. It's associated with the three fasts that Moses had on top of Mount Sinai. It's associated with Elijah's fast also on Mount Sinai, and it's associated with Jesus's fast in the wilderness. It's associated with the length of time uh, Israel's united kingdom, the three great kings reigned, Saul and David and Solomon. There's many other, uh, you know, numbers of 40 that we could get into, but the fact that Lent is 40 days is also meant to show that just like these other 40s, it's a season of transition and a season of renewal. It's supposed to be a time uh, where we are more focused on a couple verses in the New Testament, like Romans 12, 2, where we are to be transformed, or 2 Corinthians 3:18, where we are to be transformed. We'll get into those verses in, in a moment. So the story I want to focus on tonight is a story about Jesus' transformation. Usually it's referred to as his transfiguration. But our word transformation and transfiguration really are the same exact word in Greek. So we could call this story of Jesus his transformation or his transfiguration. It comes from a Greek word uh, that is simply um, metamorpho. It's where we get the English word metamorphosized from, right? It's like... It, it pictures the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. The story of Jesus' metamorphosis, or transfiguration, is so important to the biblical story that it's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, it's found in Luke, Second Peter, in the first chapter of Second Peter, of the one event that Peter wants to allude to that would confirm the prophetic word. He alludes to the story of the transfiguration, because... Peter was one of the three guys who was on top of the mountain of the transfiguration. So it's no small event, for it discloses exactly who Jesus Christ is as the enthroned Son of Man who rules over all things seen and unseen. The man who went from suffering to glory, from the cross to the crown, that is what the story of the transfiguration is really all about, because we'll see the events that it is sandwiched in between in all of the Gospels. So the way that Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain is set up in the Gospels is that right before the story, 
we have the story of Jesus taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in order to reveal who he was to them. Remember that story? He goes to the far north. I was there when I was in Israel last summer. It's, it's the far north. It's right at the border of Lebanon. It's right at really the base of, of Mount Hermon there. And it was a pagan area. It wasn't where a lot of Jews were. It was a, a pagan area. There were temples to Caesar. There were temples to the god Pan. And, and what does Jesus do there? He, he reveals his identity. He asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? Right? And people are like, well, some people say they say Elijah, they say Jeremiah, and then he gets, he gets more to the crux of it. He says, but, but who, to, who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, he goes, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the son of the living God, right? And Jesus, of course, says, you are correct, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, right? For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then what happens is that um, he immediately, after Peter made that declaration that he was the Christ, he immediately began to speak of the Christ in a way that was not familiar to the disciples. In fact, right after Peter makes his confession, it says this in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Remember what Peter does right after Jesus says this? He begins to rebuke him. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Peter didn't understand that the Messiah was the suffering servant who first must die and be crucified before he began to reign in glory. He thought the Messiah was one who would immediately lead them in triumph into Jerusalem, who would drive out the Romans, who would drive out all of Israel's enemies, and who would reign over the world. Well, right after rebuking Peter for rebuking uh, him, <laughs> this is what Jesus does next. It says this in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? So not only was Jesus saying, right after his identity is revealed, not as only saying that I need to suffer, I need to die, I need to be killed and then rise again, but he's saying that all of my followers, guess what, you guys need to do too. If anyone wants to be my disciple, <laughs> let him pick up his cross and follow me. What was the cross in their day? It was the instrument of ultimate torture and death and shame. Nothing spoke of torture, shame, and death like the cross was. And what was Jesus saying is, you need to put your old man to death. And in fact, in Luke, Jesus says this, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Because he knew what? He knew every day was a decision to make whether I'm going to follow my flesh or I'm going to walk by the Spirit. Whether I'm going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus or whether I'm going to make my own trail or my own path in life. 
And he's saying, you got to make the best decision every day, which is to pick up that cross, to die to self, say, Jesus is my Lord. I got him indwelling me, and he's going to guide me. He's going to lead me today. I'm not, I'm not going to live by the old man anymore. So Jesus, he next says something that, that you know, uh, really goes over most people's minds, right? And, um, and so, you know, in that statement that they too must pick up the cross, Jesus is also saying that we too must go from suffering to glory. We too must go from the cross to the crown. And, and that sometimes, you know, uh, that that entails, entails a suffering to the flesh or to the old man that, that just doesn't crave the things of the Lord, that doesn't crave the things of God, that, 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 that craves really, you know, the bondage that it's living in. But, but look what Jesus goes on to say next. And, and he gives them a glimpse of hope that though, of course, he's saying, I got to go suffer and die and be crucified. He says this in Matthew 16, 27, the very next verse. For the Son of Man will come in glory, in the glory of his Father. Wow. With his angels. Wow, he has angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, people he's talking to, probably only his disciples because they're in Caesarea Philippi, right? And there's not a Jewish population over there. He wanted to get them away from the crowds. There are some standing here um, who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, right? So what is that a reference to? where he's assuring us that some people he's talking to right there would see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. You know, this is one of Jesus' many references in the Gospel to Daniel chapter 7. It has nothing to do with his coming at the end of history, even though most people think that's what it has to do with it. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, everyone who was standing there, when he made that statement, guess what they've tasted? Death, right? They've tasted death. So either Jesus was true, and this event has already happened, or he's a false prophet, and he's not the Lord, right? But of course, we know he is the Lord, and so this is an event that has already happened. So Jesus is obviously referring to something else, and I think the primary reference is to his ascension, and secondarily, his coming in judgment when the forms of the Old Covenant were done away with in AD 70, just as he said they would be. Well, when Jesus ascended into heaven, there was at least... One there, who he was speaking to in Caesarea Philippi, who had already tasted death. You know who it was? Lazarus might have been there, I don't know. But it was, who committed suicide? Judas, right? Judas had tasted death. So it very well could be a reference to his ascension. Most of them had not tasted death. Also, when AD 70 happened, most of the apostles had been martyred by that time with the exception, most likely, of John. So either event of those two events could, Jesus could be referring to here. Well, what is the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? What is he talking about? In Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four empires in the forms of beasts that would rule the oikunomene, which is basically Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia. They would be the most powerful rulers in the entire world of their day, and the Jewish people would reside under their power during those times. So Daniel says that each of these four beasts, that they, they represent Babylon, they represent Persia, they represent Greece and Rome, 
And it says in Daniel 7:12 that they had their dominion taken away. So these four beasts had their dominion taken away. And immediately after, all the beasts of the Oikumene had their delegated dominion that God had granted them taken away. Daniel sees this happen. Let's read it. Daniel 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus said many of those who are standing there would see. All power and authority given to the Son of Man. What did Jesus say upon rising from the dead right before he ascended into heaven? All power and authority has been given unto me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And I'll be with you, even to the end of the age, right? So that event has already happened. Jesus is the ruler now, a much greater ruler than Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome ever was. He rules all things seen and unseen. Now, because this saying comes right before the transfiguration account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, many think the transfiguration account is the fulfillment of those of these men seeing the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. But that can't be true because he could only enter his kingdom after going through the suffering of the cross. And Jesus also indicates that some of them would die and wouldn't see it. But what is true about the transfiguration is that it is them seeing a foretaste of who Christ is as the one who will reign forever. So let's read the account of the transfiguration in Matthew. Matthew 17, verse 1. So he talks about all this suffering, right? He is the Christ, and he says, okay, let me tell you what the Christ has to do. He's got to suffer. He's got to be crucified. And guess what? If you want to be his disciples, what do you got to do? You got to pick up your cross daily. You got to follow him. And then he shows the glory that will come after that. Matthew 17, verse 1. Now after six days... So they've traveled from Caesarea Philippi, probably back to Galilee. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, right? His inner three. He takes them up on a high mountain by themselves. On uh, two other occasions in Matthew, before this, Jesus had gone into the hills, but he was already sur always surrounded by crowds. Now he wants a completely private event on a high mountain away from everyone else and away from everyday life. And he wants his three closest companions to go with him who could talk about the event after the resurrection. And so, you know, 
Um, it, it's interesting uh, that uh, Mark and Luke, they actually have even more details than Matthew has. And I want to read one interesting detail that Luke has uh, concerning Moses and Elijah as they appear uh, with Jesus there. So Jesus, right, he's transfigured. His face is shining like the sun. Mark says he's like whiter than any launderer could launder someone. I mean, he's just exceedingly light. He's exceedingly bright. It's hard to describe the glory that is shining from Jesus. It's almost like uh, th th this picture is, is kind of like uh, when, when, when Moses goes on the top of the Mount Sinai. Re remember how a cloud covers Mount Sinai? and there's lightning flashes, and, and it caused the people who were below to be in terror, just kind of like the disciples are in terror when the, the cloud covers um, the Mount of Transfiguration here. It's really God's chariot throne that's pictured in Ezekiel 1 for it. God's chariot throne, it comes, and it resides over this mountain where Jesus and the three disciples, and he thunders, right, right after Jesus is bright shining. And it's kind of like Moses, because when Moses, it says that he entered the cloud, and that he began to speak face to face with God. Remember that? It says that he, he spoke face to face to him as a man speaks with his friend. And I don't think that because we're also told that Moses didn't see his face, yet he spoke face to face to him. He only saw his backside. I think he was, he was face to face with him, but, but God was obscured in the glory cloud, right? He, he couldn't see him. And yet, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, remember what his face was like? It was shining bright. It was shining so bright that he had to get a veil to cover his face because people were afraid of him. It's like that being in the presence of God, it transfigured him. It transformed him in a mighty way. Well, when we see Moses and Elijah appear again on this mountain with Jesus, it's like now the one they fully desired to see face to face on the mountain, because Elijah had climbed Mount Sinai too for 40 days and had an encounter with God there as well, just like Moses. But the one they both desired to see face to face, now they see face to face in the bright shining light of Jesus, right? And, 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 and what's cool is now, it's not just Moses' face that is shining, but when he sees Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's full of glory too. This is the detail that Luke adds. It's in Luke 9, verse 30. It says this, Luke says, And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. How did Moses and Elijah appear? They appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, or other uh, translations put it, of his exodus, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I just love how Moses and Elijah appear in glory. I mean, it's one thing to talk about Jesus appearing in glory. We know, right, he's going to appear in glory. I mean, he is the incarnate Son of God. That shouldn't surprise us, right? But when we see that Moses and Elijah also appear in glory, meaning, um, you know, this isn't the same old Moses and Elijah, right? It's not like they just came back to life. No, this is Moses and Elijah glorified, right? It isn't just his face shining, it's his whole being that's shining. Moses and Elijah here on the high mountain are a picture of the destiny of all of those who are in Christ Jesus. We are destined to be glorified with 
Christ Jesus to fully share in his glory. Whom he justified, these he also glorified, Romans 8 said. The fact that they are on the high mountain also means, uh, it makes us think of the first high mountain in Scripture. You know what the first high mountain in Scripture is? Ezekiel 14 tells us. It's the Garden of Eden. Okay? Remember the Garden of Eden? There's a river that flows uh, through the Garden of Eden, and it splits into four riverheads, and it waters the whole earth. Why? Because Ezekiel 14 makes us understand the reason why water all flows from Eden to the rest of the world is because Eden is like on this plateau on this high mountain. And so uh, um, the fact that they are on the high mountain and that it is the garden, it, you know, it makes us think of the Garden of Eden, of paradise. That is the destiny of those who are in Christ Jesus, to be with the Lord Jesus in paradise forever, sharing his glory. And, and, and I think Jesus didn't just want to give his disciples a glimpse of who he was. He wanted to give his disciples a glimpse of how he made his disciples to be. <laughs> Moses and Elijah, right? Wow, that they are glorified as well. In fact, the destiny of the saints who belong to Christ is that they will be shining like the sun in all of its strength, just like Christ. You know, that's what it says about you and me, too. Not just that Jesus shone like the sun in all, all of its strength, but that his people will shine like the sun in all their strength. And in fact, it has to do also with this same mountain that Jesus is on. And it's in the book of Judges. When Deborah, that great judge in Judges 4 and 5, and her great general Barak, they had to go and they had to defeat the Canaanites in the land. They had to defeat that great satanic commander Sisera, right? Remember that, the one that J.L. put that, you know, spike through his temple right into the ground? Well, after all their glorious victory against the Canaanites, against Sisera, remember how Deborah sang a song? And this is the end of her song. She sings this in, in Judges 5, verse 31. She says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. Now what is so cool about this statement? Let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. As she's picturing the army of Barak and all the Israelite warriors who came down from Mount Tabor to fight against uh, the Canaanites and the Sisera. And I think there were something like 900 iron chariots at the base of the mountain. And interestingly, you know what Mount Tabor is? It is the traditional site of where Jesus was transfigured. In fact, it most likely uh, is that mountain. I was, I was there, you know, last summer when we were in Nazareth in Jesus' hometown. And you look over the cliff where Jesus, where they wanted to throw Jesus and kill him. You know what you see when you're looking right over the cliff? You see a giant valley, big plain, and you see in the middle of the plain, one tall high mountain in the middle of the plain. And you know what that tall high mountain in the middle of the plain is? It's Mount Tabor. It's where the armies of Barak went and ascended, and they, 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 they got the glory of the Lord up there, and they descended in power, and they descended in strength, and they smote all the enemies. And, and that was a, a terrible military strategy. It's terrible. And, and, and yet God, why? Because it was not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord that they were uh, conquering, and they were able to, to drive back all of the enemy. And so... Um, 
it's uh, uh, just as the warriors of Barak came down the mountain shining like the sun in full strength to defeat the enemy, so that is ultimately all of our destinies when we love the Lord. That we emit the glow of God who is light and are restored to how he created us. We are children of light, Paul says. Therefore, walk as children of light. Become who you are. Realize who God has made you to be, right? And when we pick up our cross, that is one way that we allow the light of the resurrection truth inside of us to have more of a way through us. You know, the Bible says over and over again that our destiny is that we will shine like the sun in all of its strength, that we will shine like the stars of heaven. Daniel says this in Daniel 12, 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul picks up on this theme in his uh, great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, he speaks about how our bodies will be raised, that they will be glorious bodies. And he compares the resurrected body to the different glories of the celestial bodies in the sky, like the sun, the moon, and the Just as certain as we have borne the image of the man created from dust, Adam, so those in Christ will also fully bear the image of the heavenly man, Christ. Do you realize who you are? You will shine like Jesus Christ. You will be like Moses and Elijah in glory on the mountain. Amen. This is why that great hymn that we sing, Amazing Grace, one of the lyrics in that song is, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. That is our destiny. That's, that's a scriptural truth in that lyric, right? John says this about our destiny in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Like, he already said, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. That's, that's great. But, but yet he says, and, and, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you realize the glory of that destiny? Do you realize it? Do you have a picture of it? In light of that truth, being a child of God, and that we will be even as Christ is, he is pure. Right? He's saying, Man, I know what my destiny is, but I want to experience more of that destiny now, in the here and now. I want to shine brighter now. Like, like Paul says in Philippians 2.15, he says that we are to shine like stars amidst a crooked and perverse generation. Right? If I have this hope, and the light of Jesus is already inside of me, and Jesus said that I'm the light of the world, man... I want, the I want the resurrection glow now. <laughs> the glory we will one day fully experience, seek to realize more of that glory now in your life through the purity of your heart. Jesus said in one of his beatitudes, the pure in heart shall see God.
Romans 12.2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. That's the same word that is used of Jesus on, on the mountain. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does he say in verse 1 right before this? Therefore, in light of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. What comes before the transfiguration or the transformation? A living sacrifice. Picking up your cross daily. This is woven again and again and again and again. The more we pick up our cross, the more we have the opportunity for the resurrection life, the resurrection light, the resurrection love, which is already inside us, to have a display outside of us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, he's comparing Moses' experience on top of Mount Sinai to you and me. But we all, with unveiled face, Moses had a veiled face, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Again, the same word used of Jesus' transformation on the mountain. Are being transfigured into the same image from glory to glory. Who wants to go from glory to glory here? I don't just want to go to glory. I want to go from glory to glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You know why Moses had to put the veil on his face? Anyone remember why? Because, yeah, that's the first reason why, because people were afraid. But Paul goes on to say, because that glory was fading away. He had a decreasing glory. We don't veil our faces because we're not afraid for people to see the glory is fading away. We have an ever-increasing glory. Because we got the Spirit of God residing inside of us. Moses just entered in that cloud where the Spirit of God is. You know, he did it for, I think, 120 days, which was pretty glorious. <laughs> but we have the Spirit of God residing inside of us. We don't have to have a diminishing glory like Moses had. We're being transfigured from glory to glory. I want to go from glory to glory. You know what Peter says in 2 Peter 1? I don't have that verse. I think it's verse 4. But he says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. And that's in that same chapter, he goes on then to explain um, the transfiguration of Jesus and how the prophetic word of God is made sure. And how he had seen his glory on the mountain. And Peter, when he saw that glory of Jesus on the mountain, when he saw that Moses and Elijah were sharing in that glory, and then he says that you and I, believers, have become partakers of the divine nature because, of course, we are one with Jesus Christ. He has come to dwell inside of us with the Holy Spirit, that we've been made sons of God. It's like a glory I think most of us take too little time to consider. You know what I mean? So what happens is, you know, what happens is things go back to normal real quick, right? 
I think it's Luke or Mark, one of them says they were sleepy up there. So they weren't viewing things very long. And then all of a sudden, the cloud covers them, and the father thunders, this is my beloved son. And then immediately, Moses and Elijah are gone, right? And Jesus is back to normal. He was bright shining like the sun now. He's like the normal dude they've been walking around with forever. And they go down the mountain. Let's read verse, Matthew 17, verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Right? They've just seen Elijah, now they're trying to make these connections. Uh, Malachi says uh, that Elijah would come and he'd bring restoration generationally to people. And then Jewish tra tradition developed that to where he would be bring ultimate restoration to the world. And so, Jesus, verse 11 says, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Likewise, just like Elijah suffered at their hands, likewise the Son of Man is. Verse 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. His clothing is described um, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 3. He's got camel hair on, he's eating honey. That's the same way Elijah is described in the Old Testament. In Matthew 11, Jesus had already said, if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, you know, uh, John has already fulfilled fulfilled that role. And so let's go on to read verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Now remember, it's in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus had already given them power and authority, right? to go and to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and to cleanse the leper. But this guy, apparently, they can't help. They had already seen all that stuff happen. This time, it, it, they're not able to do it. They could not cure him. Verse 17, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Um, it's interesting here, like I said, that these are disciples, right, who had experienced the mighty wonders of God, right? They had went around and they had commanded demons to come out of people and they had healed the sick. And now this, this man, none of the nine disciples, at least who were with there still at the bottom of the mountain, none of the nine could cast this demon out of this man. And, and Jesus, he rebukes them. He says, you're a faithless generation, right? And he says, um, I don't know what they were doing, if they were just relying too much on the 
power and authority that Jesus had bequeathed to them. Maybe they didn't pray. Um, maybe they didn't fast. But they come and, and, and they're powerless. But Jesus said that they didn't need to be powerless. They had all that they needed. All that they needed was faith and prayer and fasting. In Luke 9, another detail that's in the Transfiguration account, I, I mentioned, I just want to read it to you. It's in verse 32. It says this, but, but Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. This is when they're still up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John, they're heavy with sleep. <laughs> kind of like how they sleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, the three who went with him, right? They're sleeping again. They're sleepy when, at the most important moments. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men who stood with him. Um, you know, um, Jesus... Um, had been transfigured on the mountain and came down in faith. The other disciples had not been. And they met their faithless partners there at the bottom of the mountain. Maybe it was because they were sleepy. Uh, maybe, you know, it had to do with the fact that they simply weren't people of prayer and they didn't understand who they were. And, and so they lost sight of what God could do in them. But I, I think what's, what's interesting here is just, like, this is a life of, I think, a lot of us through our journey in life, is that we can either go through life sleepy, aware of who Christ is, and aware of his glory inside of us, or we can go through life more awake. And in one way, Jesus says that we go through life more awake. And I, I think it has to deal with this whole transfiguration narrative and what's before it and what's after it, it has to do with picking up your cross daily and following him. And if we do that and we're aware of the power and authority that we've been given to him and we can pray in the name of Jesus and we can move forward in faith, sometimes it may mean picking up your cross and denying yourself. It may mean fasting. Maybe there's some lack of the resurrection glow in our life because We've allowed that part of our world, of our bodies, to just have too much of a sway, a control over us. Maybe we got to say, man, you know, I, food is too much of a master. <laughs> it's too much of a lord. It's kind of like mammon. It's got too much control over me. Maybe I need to, you know, take more occasion to be someone who, who fasts, like Jesus said he expected us we would be. And so I just think that that really ties into what Ash Wednesday is all about. Because Ash Wednesday is all about being more intentional to fall deeper into the life and love of God that is inside of us, right? And it's saying, you know, I'm going to give something up so I can devote more time to prayer, to being with the Lord on the mountain, to seeing His glory, to having it reflected in my life, to know where I'm going, and to desire to see that glory even experienced here, that I want to go from glory to glory. That's what Ash Wednesday is about. That's what the season of Lent is about. It's about humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's not about trying to gain his favor. It's, it's about understanding the great favor that he has already freely gifted to us. It's understanding that, that we need him more than we need ourselves, right? It, it's, it's understanding that, man, 
my pride gets in the way, and yet I'm a man of dust. I could have all the riches in the world. And yet, what does Jesus say? If you lose your soul, you have nothing, right? So that's what we're going to do in, in a moment here. And before we, we do that, I, I, I just want to explain a little bit about, uh, we're going to do a little ash ceremony. And you know that the ash ceremony, it's, you kind of see ash ceremonies throughout Scripture. We talked about that a little bit on uh, last Sunday, how there are several times when the people of God or even the enemies of God put ashes on themselves. Uh, um, and then there's, of course, the time in, in the Gospels where Jesus alludes to how, you know, if, if he had been, been among people and they'd seen his mighty works, that these people would have repented and, and been in, in ashes, right? They would have, it's a sense, he's saying, they would have humbled themselves, right? In recognizing who I was. And, and that's what we do in, in the ash ceremony. It's all about, again, recognizing who we are and recognizing who he is in us. And so I, I just want to read something that uh, Pastor Matt Kennedy wrote. He, he said this, he said, the purpose of the imposition of ashes is so that we might publicly proclaim not our piety, kind of like the Pharisees, right? In fact, these ashes has nothing to do with someone entering a fast. It's not a, a mark that you've entered a fast. It's just a mark that you have entered to, to, to identify with the death of Jesus Christ and identify with his death and be conformed to his death. It doesn't, some people will fast alongside of it, others won't, okay? But it's, it's not a mark of that. It's, uh, so he says, the purpose for the imposition of ashes is not that we might proclaim, publicly proclaim, not our piety, but rather our worthiness for condemnation. We are dust. We publicly say, I am a sinner worthy of death. Ashes are hardly a mark of spiritual pride. In fact, if used rightly, the ashes undermine the public view of Christianity that is as a religion of moral improvement. The ashes say, no, the church is an assembly of the would-be damned who have been rescued by Christ and his work on the cross alone. The ashes say, we have no hope but the cross. Of course, every ceremonial act, even in the most... Um, uh, low congregation can be misused and abused, but the tendency is to discard the entire rite on account of its misuse. This is folly. And moreover, it's difficult to think of a better way to invite our unbelieving friends and neighbors to inquire about the gospel. That is the black smudge on your forehead. The ash means I'm a sinner. The cross reminds me that God sent his only son to save sinners. And so, you know, you, whoever wants to participate in the ash ceremony, I'm just going to put a a cross on you, if you want the cross. And um, I'm just going to declare over you, God demonstrated his love towards you in this, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Find yourself in the love and life of Christ. Pick up your cross and follow him. Okay, and that's what we're going to do. And you know, these ashes, traditionally, uh, most denominations, churches, they save their palms from last Palm Sunday, and that's what I did from our Palm Sunday celebration last year, and I, <laughs> I did a big fire in my backyard and burned the palm branches, and then um, I took some oil, and you know, it, it's, it's the oil, it's the ashes, it's reminded that we are dust, but we are destined for glory, right? We are dust, but we are destined for glory, and so one thing we're going to do um, as we do that, and um, I'm going to play a, 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 a song.
And uh, the song is uh, called uh, Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I am changed. And so it's going to have the lyrics on the screen there for you. And I just want you to think of this season of Lent is it's not because of me, right? That's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about my works. It's about because of Jesus, I am changed, okay? And so I'm going to go ahead and uh, turn my mic off, and I'm going to just stand right down here. I'm going to bring my bowl of, of ashes, and anyone who wants the ashes, you can feel free to line up, and I'll put a little ash on you, and uh, then we'll close up the service. So uh, why don't we go ahead and, and run that song, and anyone who would like ashes, you can come.